What's up, Bike Boomer fans? If you've ever wondered how tire size and rim profiles affect aerodynamics, then this episode is for you. My guest is Dove Tate, founder of Parkour Wheels, a UK brand that's been pushing the envelope on wider rims optimized around wider tires. The story of how he got to that point, from putting 360-degree wind sensors low on the bike to intentionally doing wind tunnel tests without a frame attached to the wheels, is really cool. We dive pretty deep on leading edge, trailing edge, optimizing for gravel tires, and a whole lot more, with stories about how he's built his company mixed in for the entrepreneurial-minded among us. There's even talk about some new wheels and where they might be headed with future product development. Please welcome Dove Tate. Hey, Dove, welcome to the Bike Boomer Show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. I'm a long-time listener, so uh, yeah, great to have a conversation. Awesome, yeah. Well, just to kick things off, I did this for the first time um, recently and for the past couple, and it seems to be a nice way to just sort of dive in is just ask my guests to share a story, like tell us something fun and cool that's happened in the world of Dove Tate and Parkour Wheels. I think a good story would be, uh, I, I suppose... It's kind of that moment when I knew that we were really starting to make our mark on on the industry and starting to get noticed. And it was it was last May, actually, almost almost exactly a year ago now. I was out at the Ironman World Championships race, which had been delayed and postponed and moved to St. George in Utah. And at the time, we had some of our professional athletes that we sponsor who were racing, and they were all racing on unreleased prototype wheels that we put a huge amount of time and investment into. So, you know, you can imagine I was pretty nervous as they were going out onto the bike. And then I found myself dashing around the desert trying to follow them around the course. And, and midway through, one of our one of our male pros, Kyle Smith, who's a Kiwi athlete, absolute beast of a swim bike runner, was he was actually leading the race. Um, there was a breakaway group of five guys who, who sort of pulled away from the pack and were leading all the way through the bike, uh, came off the bike and he was running in first place and uh, had this sudden thought of, I couldn't for the life of me remember what number we put in his contract as a win bonus. <laughs> so <laughs> so, so there, I was, there I was uh, scrabbling around on my, on my iPhone in the middle of uh, the Utah desert, trying to find the, the, the contract that I sent over to his agent a, a few months beforehand, thinking, you know, is this going to be the best thing that happens to us or the worst thing that happens to us? It's a high quality problem, right? But, you know, I was trying to figure out, is this still going to be a problem? And it was only really afterwards that, you know, I, I came to realize that, you know, this is kind of the, the world that we're living in now in terms of the sort of the level that we're playing at. Um, so, you know, it, it was a, it was a really interesting one for me to think that here we are as a, you know, sort of a, a smaller challenger brand really making an impact. And, you know, that day Kyle led off the bike and, and ultimately ran himself through to, to, to an 11th place finish in the world. Um, later on in the year, we had a couple of our other pro athletes in the, the women's race in Kona coming in in the top 10. And, you know, you're thinking this is, this is where we're playing now. So for me, it was, yeah, it was, it's, it's a fun little story, but at the same time, I think it really hit home at that point that we were really making our mark. All right. Cause it could have been a very expensive win for you. 
Yeah, I mean, it could have been. It could have been. Yeah, it, I think that evening I did actually have a look, and it would have been. It would have been a problem, but a nice problem. Right. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm hoping that you know, with the guys that we're working with, it becomes a problem again one day. Yeah. Well, let's. You know, I'm always geek out on the entrepreneurship side of things, and as a small business, you know, um, what year did you guys start? So I actually launched the business in 2016. Um, I had spent eight years working in investment banking in London, had picked up cycling, um, sort of developed the love for it, um, and, and really was looking for kind of the next step in life and career. And originally, back in my university days, I trained as an engineer, um, focused on aerodynamics and spent a short time working in uh, aerospace. So I'd, I'd already sort of developed that kind of aero geekery around cycling. Um, and it was, yeah, I was just out for a ride one day um, on an old set of tubular wheels, um, punctured mid-ride. And that was the end of the ride. And so I was pretty fed up, decided I wanted some new wheels, some shiny clinchers as they were back in the day. And was frankly kind of pretty horrified by the price that you had to pay or kind of taking your chances and going direct from source from a you know an eBay type website and really didn't see anything in that middle ground for a, for a wheel um, in terms of you know something affordably priced but you know supported by decent performance data um, and that's that's really where the business was born so I spent you know a number of months kind of working off the side of my desk hoping that my boss wasn't noticing my productivity <laughs> dying um, before eventually taking the plunge and uh, for for those uh, listeners who have lived through the absolute shambles of Brexit, you'll be amused to know that I actually handed in my notice to start the business a week before the Brexit vote. So, uh, so recently, wow, you've been doing parkour as a side hustle for quite no, some no, time. No, no, so, so, so the Brexit, the original Brexit vote being in 2016. Oh, um, was, God, was that long ago? Yeah, I had no idea because yeah. uh, it seems yeah. like all the news about that was just like over the last couple of years, really. And this is and, this and, is and the fallout. We, of it. Yeah, <laughs> this is this is as we're slowly learning to realize exactly what we've done. I think is the problem, um, but you know, I won't get too political about it. But it's certainly made running a business that relies on import and export fairly interesting. Well, I've I've heard nothing good <laughs> about it so, yeah, I mean, from anybody. If anybody could tell me something good from a business perspective, I'd, I'd love to hear it because, uh, yeah, it's it's a bit of a bone of contention. But um, but but no, look, it, it it meant that I suppose the reason I, I tell that story is it means that yes, we've been going for for nearly seven years now, but there hasn't been a single normal year in there. Um, <laughs> you know, we've we've had Brexit, we've had COVID, we've had the boom in cycling, we've had the supply chain crisis. We're now going through a cost of living crisis. Um, even down to the fact that, you know, a recent you know, last last month, I was out um, out in in Asia for supplier meetings, and our flight couldn't go over Russia. You know, it was a fourteen hour flight rather than an eleven hour flight. Um, things like that, you just realise that the business has never been through what you would call your average year. Yeah, well, I've been doing the entrepreneur thing and had businesses for like the past thirty years, and there is no such thing as a normal year. There's always something okay that's reassuring yeah, that's reassuring yeah. to hear but i think you know where I, where I was kind of hoping to lead to with that was just the fact that you know like here you are you know last year would have been like six-ish years in business and to think about like well man if i gotta pay this guy a wind bonus like that's an actual like 
a, a serious financial consideration of the business. I don't, I think what people don't realize, like even when you see a company that appears successful is if you're growing quickly, that just the capital requirements of that can mean that, you know, a couple thousand dollars here and there for these like unexpected expenses are sometimes like a big deal. Oh, it's huge. It's huge. And, you know, in, in a way, everything we do is a, is a gamble, right? You know, every, every R and D project that we invest in, um, it, it might not work. Um, you know, so far so good. Things have turned out well. You know, we're we're doing pretty well on that front. But you know, people, it, it is a gamble. I think you know, every time you set out to to do something like that, where the outcome is uncertain, it's a gamble. And I think you know, the thing that I'm learning is that each time the gamble gets bigger, the stakes get bigger. Yeah. Um, you know, the payoff is better, which is why you do it. But at the same time, it never gets easier making that decision. Yeah, you're moving up to the high stakes tables in the casino. Is, yeah, exactly. You guys invested pretty early on with wind tunnel testing, which you know is can get expensive pretty quickly, depending on you know where you're going and how long you're in there and all that. Um, and you did some pretty interesting testing with on bike wind sensors, which I, I find fascinating. I want to talk about like the data from that because it was there's I definitely have a lot of questions, but. Yeah, those investments, like when you were starting out and, and making that stuff and even just getting those first pieces made, the first molds cut and all that, right? Like where did that startup capital come from? Were you funding this stuff yourself? Yeah, I mean that was that was if I'm honest, it was my it was it was my previous career that mostly funded that, um, and then since then it's just been kind of bootstrapping as we go, really trying to sort of uh, grow the business as efficiently as possible without overcommitting. Um, you know, I think the next step is, uh, you know, we are going to be looking at doing a doing a bigger fundraise later this year um, to really sort of kick on from where we are now. But, but yeah, I mean, so far, it's just literally been sort of uh, blood, sweat and tears that's gone into it. So do you have um, like any friends and family investment or is it all self-funded so far? Pretty much self-funded. Um, it's been, and then, you know, any bank lender, financial institution that's ever been willing to listen, um, but uh, but no, yeah, it, it's 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 been a real sort of uh, a battle on that front. But at the same time, I think one of the nice things is it has allowed me individually to retain control. So you know, when it comes to making a decision, I get the final say, which frankly has been incredibly helpful. Um, as we've been growing because we can move so much more quickly, um, you know, when it comes to partnerships, when it comes to, you know, even just kind of interesting, fun projects that we think of, um, it's a lot, it's a lot easier to move when you don't have to go and refer back to an investment board or anything along those lines. Yeah, no, hundred percent. Are you looking at like for this first round then, is it going to be like a friends and family or are you looking to go straight to VC firms or how are you? going to do that? I mean, I think, I think it's an interesting one. I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of, a lot of very smart people who are incredibly experienced with this. And I think really, I think what we're looking for is probably that sort of angel profile investor, um, but somebody who really understands the business and to some extent the industry. Um, you know, I, I don't think that cycling has got a great track record with sort of VCP money in the past. Um, you know, I think that that leads to a lot of, dare I say, it, bad decisions. Um, and I don't think that I want to take the business down that road. So I think, yeah, it's it's more of that kind of, I would say, committed, enthusiast angel profile that we're looking at and talking to. 
because I think, you know, you, you do need to understand that, you know, we all think that our industry is unique and special, but I think that there is a lot to be said for it, that it, that it genuinely is. Um, and that we need to be making the right decisions for the right reasons in order to keep the business going where it's going. Yeah, there's a few other businesses I've seen. I mean, the outdoor industry as a whole, I think, falls into this category where it's it's so much passion driven that trying to find, you know, as you move up the BC ladder, right, like there's people there that their sole mission is to make money. Their passion is making money, right? Our passion is making killer products. And a lot of times you end up with some very different priorities when you have that uh, sort of relationship <laughs> or you, you exactly. try and bring those two parties together. Anyway, enough about uh, raising money and all that. Um, <laughs> let, let's talk about some products here. So yeah. you um, have a couple of pretty long form articles on your website about like wider rims and, and wider going wider for optimum aerodynamics. And, you know, I was reading through it and there's one rule. I just like, maybe we can start with this because it was sort of interesting. The rule of 105. What is that? So the rule of 105 is... It's, it's, it's probably one of the most quoted rules within cycling aerodynamics, particularly around wheels, that basically states that as a rule of thumb, in order to maintain aero performance, you would like your rim to be approximately 105% the width of your tyre. And it, it was originally coined by Josh Portner back in his days at Zip. And, you know, incredibly smart guy, Josh knows exactly what he's doing. And I think that every test that we've ever run reinforces that. Um, essentially, what you're trying to do is you've got your leading edge, which is the tire, which is breaking through the air and creating turbulence. And the rim profile is looking to recapture that turbulent air to smooth it out and make it as laminar as possible, as quickly as possible in order to reduce drag. Um, if you think about it in a very simple way, turbulence equals drag, reduce the turbulence, reduce the drag. and by having your rim wider than your tire, you maximize the opportunity of being able to recapture that turbulent airflow. Now, there's plenty of debate and plenty of testing that's gone into looking at, you know, is it is 105 the exact number? Um, but in terms of a start point from our development process, that's where we chose to go based on kind of the, the vast majority of the research that we'd seen thus far. So what is it about having the rim a little bit wider that captures that turbulence and smooths it? So I mean, like I say, effectively what it's, what it's doing is it's taking, it's taking that turbulent airflow and it's allowing it to run against the rim profile um, in a more controlled manner. Because otherwise you're ending up with, if you think about having a tire that's wider than your rim, you're going to end up with sort of eddy currents of air coming off the edge of the wider tire that don't have anywhere to flow and are stalling much more quickly um, before they're able to contact against the, against the rim profile. Um, so that's certainly the theory. Um, and again, you know, we've seen it in, in the CFD simulations that we, that we run early doors in terms of the development process. Um, but more importantly, we're seeing it in the sort of the final wind tunnel testing that's showing that drag is reduced when, when we're running a nice wide rim versus the tire width. So I'm going to jump way ahead here just because we're talking about wider rims. So then we're kind of screwed when it comes to gravel then. Cause, or are we like, could you have like a 40 or 45 millimeter wide rim yeah. profile to match current gravel tires? So the interesting thing about gravel and, you know, it, 
it won't surprise anybody to know that we are looking at this in an incredible amount of detail at the moment. It's you know pretty close to the top of the list. A gravel tire has tread pattern. It's it's got it's got knobbles on it, um, and that is going to have a much greater impact on disrupting the airflow than tire width. So. In terms of trying to recapture airflow from a gravel tire, you actually need to spend more time thinking about the tread pattern than you do about the width of the tire. Um, and I think you know the early results that we're seeing is that it is very, very, very challenging to error optimize around a tire width for gravel. It's more likely that you're going to see people looking to try and error optimize around a tire tread for gravel. And I think the problem there is that each tire brand has their own type of tread. Now, you can put one on one on one together and see where that leads you in terms of the way that we're thinking about this. But I think that when it comes to aero gravel, we're going to have to be a little bit smarter about it than just saying, let's have a nice wide rim um, because of that impact of tread. Um, and it's definitely something that we're looking at. It's definitely something that we're taking into consideration. But at the same time, we're very, very early stage on that. So. Um, I think I was quoted uh, in uh, a couple of the UK media outlets in the past couple of years of sort of saying fairly definitively that aero gravel isn't a thing. Um, I might be might be going back on that at some point in the future as I'm sort of learning more. But I think that the the, the basic principle is that we need to think more than just width when it comes to gravel um, because of the tread pattern on the tire. Right. That that being said, and it makes a lot of sense, but the do you see a point where having rims that are pushing out to like 40 and 45 millimeters wide? Uh, first of all, is that even feasible? But would that actually make an impact? Because most of them are, you know, 30 to 35 millimeters wide currently, which is a huge difference in compared to the tire widths. Yeah, I mean, in theory, yes. Um, I think in practice, you start to get into some practical difficulties. Um, you know, you get, you get too much wider and you get incredibly heavy. Um, you know, the rigidity of the rim is likely to suffer a little bit if you're trying to go too light. Um, impact resistance becomes a problem. And then frankly, the other thing that we found, even, even when we were looking at our, our road think wider project was that the wider the rim externally, the wider the rim becomes internally, unless you start padding out with huge amounts of material. And actually it almost becomes a circularity where, you know, you go wider externally to make it more suited to a wider tire, but then your internal rim width gets wider. So you need to run a wider tire, which means that you need to go wider externally. <laughs> you can see, you can see where we're going with this. So, you know, actually, unless you start doing something pretty extreme around the internal external rim measurements and having incredibly thick rim walls, again, you're sort of slightly hamstrung there. So I think, I mean, look, what's really exciting for me as an engineer and as a, and as a wheel designer is that I think we as an industry are only really starting to say, well, what does aero gravel look like? Two, three years ago, you talked about a gravel bike and it was fairly sort of ubiquitous in terms of what it looked like. Whereas now we're defining, well, you've got a race gravel bike, you've got an adventure gravel bike, you've got a touring gravel bike. And actually we're starting to sort of see subsections within the design. And I think that, you know, from a wheel perspective, again, we're starting to follow that. So you've got your adventure gravel wheel where, you know, we're not worried about aero performance. We're worried about durability. You know, you might be more worried about weight. You might be worried about serviceability. But then you've got your race gravel side of things where actually, you know, some of the speeds that we're seeing in the, the gravel racing, 
particularly over your side of the Atlantic, is you know it's starting to have a major impact. You know, it's getting very competitive. So I think you know we're kind of starting out on that road in a way that perhaps we weren't two or three years ago. Okay, we go back to road because I think the, the, the majority of your focus thus far has been on road with the current product lineup and stuff. So looking at the product testing, the way you came about with this wider era thing and the difference. So one of the things that stands out about your wheels is that the front and rear had different profiles, different depths, different shapes, is you actually put little wind direction and speed sensors on the bike at the axles front and rear to get some of the data that showed that, you know, maybe the wheels needed to be different. So I'm, I'm really curious, like you showed, I think it was like a one and a half degree angle, wind yaw angle difference from front to rear, but why? Yeah, so so this really stemmed back to, and, and if I take a step back, when you're testing in the wind tunnel, um, you're testing at fixed yaw angles. And what you need is a method to translate that into real world conditions. So in effect, you need to know what your angles you see in the real world um, so that you can weight your testing towards those. And as we were starting to set out on the testing journey, there really weren't that many data sets available, publicly at least, that would translate real world your angles to, to wind tunnel testing. Um, and even then, the way that they were obtained and the way that they were sampled, to me, seemed either wrong or inaccurate. Um, you know, having a, a having a wind sensor out on a long stick in front of your bike as you're riding up and down the road is great. But at the same time, all you're going to be doing is seeing what the wind is doing in the clean air before the riders pass through it. Um, you know, I've even seen some data sets where it's literally a case of taking average readings from a weather station around the country um, and looking at what the wind angle does. That's great until you realize that you're, in order to qualify as a weather station, you have to be 10 meters plus over, above the ground. Um, not many bikes get ridden 10 meters above the ground. You've got the ground effect to take into account. Um, so, so this was something that I was talking to um, a, a guy, Steve Faulkner, at Nottingham Trent University about. Um, so the sports science department there is one of our technical partners, and we run a lot of our research projects with them. And so we started talking about this and realized that actually, if we wanted to gather our own data, on this, we could use much smaller instruments that were now available. So it's actually uh, the technical name for it, or the full name, is an ultrasonic anemometer. So it's a wind sensor that beams four beams of ultrasonic sound um, around a circle, or sorry, um, at four points of a circle. Um, and it can then infer from that both the wind speed and the wind direction. Um, it was originally developed to sit on the top of a mast of a sailing yacht. So we looked at the, the data recording capabilities of this and realized that firstly, it was suitable for what we wanted to do with cycling. But secondly, it was small enough, you know, it's about the size of your fist, that we could actually mount it at different points on the bike. Um, and, and this was super useful for me because to me, intuitively, it's always seemed sensible to say that the airflow is going to look different at different points on the bike. You know, I mentioned the leading edge of the tire that's going through clean air. Um, however, by the time the airflow reaches the back of the bike or where the rear wheel is, it's been disrupted and um, ridden through by the front wheel 
most of the point has then gone past your legs, which are rotating on a separate axis as you're pedaling. Um, you know, we know that the impact of um, rider legs is fairly substantial on airflow. Um, and then you've also got the fact that any sort of substantial crosswind is going to have come in from the side and then sort of almost been pushed backwards along the bike because it can't pass as easily through the frame. Um, and so we put the, put the sensors on the bike and sent some volunteers out riding in all sorts of wind conditions. And I think what was super interesting was that we saw this trend coming back, like I say, fairly intuitively, that the average your angle, so the average angle that the wind is hitting you at, at the front wheel was higher than at the rear wheel, um, which if you think about it in a fairly simplistic way, makes sense because the front wheel has got that sort of slightly cleaner airflow with the crosswind coming in if there's a crosswind. But then by the time it reaches the rear wheel, you've got all of that airflow that's come in, hit the bike or your legs and is now being pushed backwards and the slightly cleaner airflow coming in from the side. And so kind of the vector sum of the two makes for a slightly lower your angle. And like I say, over you know tens, if not hundreds of thousands of data points, we were seeing this trend hold true, um, that on average, the your angle at the front wheel was higher than the rear wheel. And I think what's really interesting there is that has massive implications for the design of the wheels. Um, you know, we know that that sort of much wider, blunter U-shaped profile is faster at higher your angles than the slightly older school, um, sharper V profiles that we used to see that were you know, incredibly fast with low your angles, but as soon as you put a crosswind onto them, would start to slow down a little bit. Um, and so there, what we did was we were able to say, right, well, we could develop, I suppose, a design language for our wheels, whereby we're optimizing the front wheel design for the airflow conditions you see at the front wheel and the rear wheel design for the airflow conditions you're seeing at the rear wheel. And I think the, the, the final piece to that is that, you know, your front wheel has a massive impact on the handling stability. Um, you know, if you have a, a really deep rim, then people start to get nervous about, you know, gusty winds and what that does to the handling stability. Whereas the rear wheel, you've got more weight over it and it's fixed. So it's not free to turn on, on its axis. So again, you don't have the same considerations for handling. So that's a very long way of saying that we ended up with different designs for the front and rear wheels. Um, but there is a, but I think what's quite interesting is that we can actually say with confidence and with a good level of detail exactly why we do it, which has sort of made us stand out a bit. You mentioned the word stall earlier, and I want to go back to that just real quick so I don't forget to ask about it. But define stall when it comes to like bicycle wheels and bicycle aerodynamics. What is what does it mean and what is what is the actual like perceived or, or felt effect of it? So so stall occurs when you lose lift. And the, the impact of that on a bike wheel is that with a sufficiently high yaw angle, at which point stall will occur on any wheel, when you lose the lift if effect then most noticeably, you'll feel a sort of an instability with um, the handling, but you'll also see a, a fairly substantial increase in drag. So if you ever look at a drag plot um, against your angle on a, a bike wheel, you'll see, generally speaking, that as the your angle increases, 
the drag will sort of decrease, decrease, decrease up to a point where it then immediately then increases again. And that's the point at which you store. Okay. So again, there are different things you can do to the design of your rim to tweak the point at which your rim stalls. And it's, it does come down to a, to some extent, a decision as, you know, how high an angle do you want to reach before you stall and what the trade-off is. Yeah. Cause that, that seems to be, I mean, I, this is going on. I mean, geez, since I started Bike Boomer, right? Like 15 years ago, almost that everybody was coming out with their, their little aerodynamic charts that showed that they were better at this, you know, this range of yaw angles. Say. And like you said, it's, a, it's a decision, right? You, you decide at some point, there's this arbitrary range of yaw angles that you think is what, where you need to be optimized for. And so everybody could say, well, we're the best. Well, yeah, you might, everybody was the best at some angle, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just who's to, who's to say what the right angle was. But yeah, you're right. Every single one of them would show this massive spike on either end of it, depending on which side the wind was coming from, where all of a sudden the drag went off the charts. But like, so when it hits that point at a, in a, a broader crosswind, is that when, are you going to feel like the bike slowed down because of the drag or is it just going to, is that drag actually at that point pulling the wheel to one side or the other? So you're not necessarily going to feel it. However, you are going to lose the sort of the aero benefit to a large extent. It's, and then I think in terms of the, the feeling in, on, on the sort of the steering side of things, it's more a case of, is it a, is it a sudden stall or is it a gradual stall? Because if you sort of, if the, your angle that you're, that you're experiencing moves across that stall point, that's when you're going to feel an handling instability. Like it'll like tug the wheel almost like a gust of wind would or? Yeah, you, you, exactly. Exactly. You feel that sort of jerky motion, um, you know, it, and, and that's what you want to try and avoid because that's what makes people feel nervous. You know, we, we do a lot with triathletes and time trialists with really deep wheels. Um, and that's the point when, you know, they're coming out of the aero bars and they're having to get onto the pursuits in order to stabilize the bike. So a lot of what we do focuses on saying, because ultimately you can run as deep a wheel as you like, but as soon as you come out of the aero bars, you're going to give up way more aerodynamically than you're benefiting from, from the wheel. So, you know, you, the argument is you should only ever run as deep a wheel as you're comfortable riding. Now, if we can make you more comfortable riding a deeper wheel, then we're going to make you faster. Okay. Well, that, that's a good segue. I'm jumping ahead again, but like, so the question on that is why are deeper wheels faster? Which might sound like a dumb question, but you know, what is, what is it about a deeper wheel profile that makes it faster? Um, so, so effectively it goes back to what I was saying about recapturing the airflow. Um, by having a deeper, by having a deeper rim, you have got more surface of the rim with which to recapture the airflow and to return the airflow to as stable or as laminar a, a status as possible um, before it then sort of leaves the wheel um, and sort of goes off into the, into the spokes, if you like. So, and, and again, it sort of gives you that, that sort of greater surface area with which to, to achieve that. Um, so, and again, we do know that actually it's not all about depth, right? So there is a lot of impact that actual profile has as well here. Um, so, you know, just because a wheel is deep doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be faster than a shallower wheel. So it is one of the factors that plays into making a wheel fast, but all, all else being equal, 
a deeper wheel will be faster. Right. Is that were wheels ever subjected to the UCI's three to one ratio rule, or was that only for cockpit parts and frames? As far as I know, I don't think they ever were. It was more in term. I mean, the the wheel regulations have been more focused on things like impact resistance. Um, you know, actually, with, that's an entirely separate topic as the UCI's. Um, you know, wheel testing, whether it's fit for purpose. Um, <laughs> but uh, but no, there, there were never any restrictions on that. It was more in terms of, um, you know, certainly in the UK, there are, you know, restrictions on sort of what percentage of the wheel has to be open for certain types of racing. Um, so, you know, th- that sort of restricts you in terms of rim depth, but there's nothing that I've been aware of in my time that's ever covered us in terms of, you know, width to depth ratios or anything like that. So, so no. Hey, real quick, I wanted to let you know this Bike Rumor podcast is brought to you by The Pros Closet. Spring is the perfect time to upgrade your ride. From top brands to niche names, TPC has a curated selection of new and certified pre-owned bikes for every discipline. Each certified pre-owned bike is inspected, tested, and serviced by expert mechanics. And every bike includes risk-free 30-day returns. Visit theprosecloset.com slash bikerumor and enter code BRPODCAST to save $40 on every order over 200 And now back to our episode. This Bike Rumor podcast was brought to you by The Pros Closet. Wherever you ride, The Pros Closet has road, mountain, gravel, and e-bikes to get you there. TPC carries a curated selection of new and certified pre-owned bikes and a constantly expanding selection of parts, accessories, and apparel. With available financing and competitive pricing, TPC has everything you need to gear up this season. Visit theprosecloset.com slash bike rumor and enter code BR podcast to save $40 on every order over 200. What about shaping? Like you mentioned shaping, right? Like obviously you have the, the profiles, right? But you've, I've seen, you know, like Ridley has done little like trip lines on some of their frames to sort of like, you know, basically trip the air and create a more laminar flow right zip has their dimples i mean i remember when mavic had the little inserts that would like sit between the 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 top of the rim and the tire to create this fairing just totally make it smooth um have you guys looked at that like that type of shaping beyond just the profile yeah i mean so i think that the 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 big challenge that we face as, as wheel designers is that Everything, you know, other components. So, you know, you mentioned the frame with the trip, with the trip strips or, you know, some clothing, even we're seeing a lot of texture involved there. Um, there we're talking purely about translational movement. So just moving forwards and back or, you know, sort of moving forwards in a straight line, I should say. The problem with the wheel is that it's rotating as well. So you've got the rotational impact. So. If you've got any form of surface texture, not only have you got to take into account the translational drag impact, but also the rotational drag. Um, and I think that's where it gets incredibly complex. So again, one of the projects that we're looking at is actually how do we build a simulation that allows us to take into account truly the rotational impact as well as translational. Um, to allow us to look at exactly that. Um, and again, this is, you know, by this point, we're starting to talk about sort of serious levels of, um, you know, uh, not just modeling, but also computing capacity in order to calculate it. Um, it's it's probably fair to say it's above my pay grade. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, it, you know, it, it's, it's really fascinating because I think, you know, I've, I've said a couple of times um, publicly that actually 
making a fast wheel is no longer as challenging as it used to be. I think you know it's it, it's no surprise that when you see actual hard data being presented, either by a wheel brand or by an independent tester, um, we're all very close now. Um, so actually, we're now looking to say, well, how else do we differentiate ourselves? How else can we push the envelope here in terms of you know going back to it, optimizing around a wider tire? What other benefits does that bring? Well, it makes you makes you roll a little bit more smoothly, so it makes you more comfortable. Um, talked about the handling stability. We make if we can make you more stable, then that'll help make you faster. Um, again, another impact of the the wider tire is it keeps you fresher for longer. Um, you know, particularly relevant for for something like an Ironman triathlon where you're going to get off the bike and run a marathon. You know, as much as I love sitting here and saying from an aero perspective, we you know our wheels will save you four and a half minutes on your Ironman bike leg. Imagine how powerful a message it would be if we could say, but because we're optimized around a wider tire, we will get you to start your marathon X percent fresher. So we're going to save you 25 minutes on your marathon. Um, now, that's an incredibly challenging thing to quantify. Um, but I think if we can, then that becomes very powerful. Um, and then, you know, yeah, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned sort of that, that kind of, um, that airflow management through texture, because again, that's something that we're really, really interested in. Um, but it's, it's not quite as simple a process as perhaps some of our peers in non-rotational componentry have. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense and obviously introduces a lot of complexity. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, we've, we've seen it in the past in terms of, um, you know, just a little anecdote. I think one of the things that was really interesting about the the GP5000 tire was that nobody really truly understood why the GP4000 was so fast aerodynamically. Um, so actually, a lot of the time that was taken in terms of developing the, the newer model was trying to figure out how the older model was so fast. And that was purely down to the, actually the tread pattern on the tire just actually happened to be an incredibly fast one. But trying to figure out why took a lot of time and effort um, to say, well, how do we kind of recreate it but make it better for the new version? Um, because it was rotating as well as moving forwards. So, you know, it's, it's a, it's, it gets very complex very quickly, but at the same time, it means that there's a real opportunity to do something really interesting in the space. Kind of goes back to the gravel tire testing with theirs because their tread is amplified quite a bit. But oh, massively so, yeah. So just looking at road tires then, right? Like you have, um, I'm thinking like Bontrager has one where there's little dimples on the outside for a little texture. You know, Vittoria has one where there's all ridges and then there's a lot of perfectly smooth tires and, you know, the Conti's tread pattern and these little sites. I mean, there's, there's infinite variety, right? Like has anybody done all of that testing to see or have you looked at how those different tread shapes interact with your rims? Yeah, so we, we do a lot of testing where we try and test as much as possible with as many variables as possible. Um, you know, I, I mentioned first up that I, I look at myself as a bit of an aero nerd. I'm really interested in this. I'd love to know what the fastest tire is on our rims. Um, but the problem that we come across is that you can't normalize purely for tread pattern because each tire will have a different construction. So actually, as soon as you fit the tire, it's going to have a slightly different profile. Some are going to be slightly taller, some are going to be slightly shorter, but fatter, just in terms of the way that they sit. Um, so we don't necessarily know whether what makes a tire fast is purely down to the tread or also to some extent down to the, 
down to the carcass shape. Um, what we have seen in, in previous testing is that some form of texture on the tire, whether it's that sort of Conti style chevron, whether it's, you know, the, even like sort of the Vittoria, um, lines does seem to make a tire faster than if it's completely smooth. Um, and I think that the, the theory there is that you're creating sort of micro vortices around the tire, which allow air to stay a little bit less turbulent as a result coming off the tire, which makes the rim designer's life a little bit more straightforward in terms of recapturing and smoothing it. Um, so I can't say that definitively, but based on what we've tested and what we've seen, a little bit of texture is a good thing on the tire. I've noticed a lot of bikes now starting to make their fork legs a little bit wider to give a little bit more room for air to flow between the rim and the inside of the fork leg, um, which I'm guessing reduces turbulence, you know, uh, reduces drag in some way. That's the claims anyway, but like, is that something you take into consideration as how your rims interact with the forks or is there just, is that up to the bike manufacturer to sort out? So, so interestingly, it's one of the, one of the bits of feedback we get on some of our testing, cause we very strictly test wheel only. Um, and actually, you know, the internet's the internet, so everybody has an opinion. <laughs> yes, it and, is. And, <laughs> uh, you know, the, we, we do get, we do get sort of feedback from people saying, well, how can you test wheel only when there's no interaction with the fork, um, or with the, you know, with the rear triangle? I think, well, that's great, but there are so many different variations on the fork now that which one should we test with? Um, oh. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I tell you what, if somebody's willing to pay for that, I'm all, I'm all game for it. But, you know, but from a practical level, you cannot test with every potential combination. So we're choosing to try and remove as much noise <laughs> as possible so that we can test and we can, we can identify smaller differences between different wheel designs rather than worrying about the noise that we get from different, different fork shapes and so on. Um, now, I, I think, you know, anecdotally, again, I, I look at some of the evidence that I see and you look on the track and you've got sort of the, the Team GB bikes with the Hope and the Lotus design with the incredibly wide forks and they go up against the, the Argon bikes from, uh, the, the Australians that have about, you know, sort of a, a sheet of papers clearance between the, the fork and the wheel. And there's not a massive difference performance wise between those. Um, you know, they are incredibly competitive against each other. So to me, that suggests that there are impacts and there are ways that you can optimize around it. But at the same time, it doesn't tell me that there is definitively a correct solution to that question. Makes sense. With the front wheel, you have to, you basically have two leading edges because you have the, the tire at the front, but then you still have the rim that's kind of the wind is hitting that, the, you know, on the back side, the trailing side of the wheel, the wind is hitting the rim there. With only like the fork to really disrupt the wind because you're typically people's feet and legs are behind that surface. So my assumption is you sort of have two leading edges with the front, but with the rear, you know, the, the leading edge of the rear is kind of tucked behind a seat tube usually and behind the legs and all that. So with the, well, correct me if I'm wrong on any of that, but with the rear, are you optimizing more for that, that rim shape? So the leading edge on the trailing side of the wheel? To some extent, yes. I think that, you know, we, we do know that the front wheel has that sort of disproportionate impact aerodynamically. 
partly because of the fact that by the time airflow reaches the rear wheel, it's, inc- it's already incredibly turbulent. So actually, any sort of airflow management at the back of the bike is going to be more challenging because you're starting with dirty air to begin with anyway. Um, so you could almost argue that you're kind of trying to trying to make the, the best of a bad situation back there, whereas you're starting with from a much better place at the front. Um, but but no, certainly there is there is an element of trying to look at that sort of leading versus trailing edge impact because at the end of the day, you know, again going back to the point about the wheel rotating is what starts as a what starts as a leading edge becomes a trailing edge very quickly. Um, so it sort of all comes into that equation around sort of airflow management and, and what you're doing with it. Um, and I think that to some extent that leads to some very interesting questions around how we could do more with frame designers, for example, in terms of you know what the airflow is doing as it leaves the wheel at the front before it hits the down tube, say. Um, different wheels, I'm sure, will have different impacts on airflow. So therefore, is there an argument that you, you sort of play those two together? I don't know. Um, but it's one of those where, again, you know, we are learning more and more every day. Um, and I think that yeah, you could very easily, very quickly go down a very deep hole in terms of um, sort of all sorts of different things you could do here. I think from a practical level, though, we do just need to bear in mind that you know we are trying to cater for as wide an audience as possible across as wide a number of different frames, um, different tire preferences as possible. So there is an argument that says, yeah, you want to go absolutely to the sort of the nth degree of performance with an incredibly specific situation. Or do you try and make something that is kind of as much of an all-rounder as possible? Um, and I think that largely that's the sort of the approach we've taken is we try to be sort of that everything to everybody where possible, um, rather than sort of going down too niche a, a route. Um, and I'm saying that with my commercial head on rather <laughs> than with my sort of uh, scientific head on, because you're right, there's there's absolutely huge amounts of gains that I'm sure are available down that route. But at the end of the day, each time you make a decision, you are potentially narrowing down your, your target market. Um, so, so yeah, it, it, it always has to be that, that balance because, you know, at the end of the day, we are running a business, but at the same time, you don't want to be controlled by that and consumed by that because you do want to make something that's that's really damn fast. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, the only conditions I can think of where you'd have perfect, perfect and perfectly predictable conditions would be an indoor track, right? Beyond that, it, who knows what's going to happen? Yeah. So with the, the wider thing, I'm curious, like, is there, this is going to be some kind of weird questions, right? But like, have you found that all else being equal, right? Like if you took a typical shaped wheel that was deeper, can you make it faster with a shallower, lighter rim by using a wider rim profile? So a very easy answer on that one is all of our think wider rim profiles, which we've now got across the range. So sort of um, the shallow depth Ronda 3539, the mid depth Strata 4954, and the deep section chrono 6875. If you look at the predecessor in our range for each of those models, they were probably about 10 to maybe even 15% deeper. But yet every single one of our newer models is faster aerodynamically than the wheel that it's superseded. 
And that's purely down to profile rather than depth because they're all, like I say, they're all shallower. Um, now, and that applies with a 28 mil tire in particular, but they are also faster than the old models when fitted with a 25 mil tire, which is what the old models were optimized for. Right. Yeah. I was going to ask about that because you kind of optimize all of yours for a 28 mil tire, but you know, there are some people that still run or want to run a 25, maybe to save a little weight or they're just a smaller rider for whatever reason. Right. So what happens to the aerodynamics when you put a 25 millimeter tire in there? Cause we already talked about what happens when you go wider with the tires. But. Yeah. So, so again, we, we, we've tested with some 25 mil tires and to, to a large extent, the wheels are actually pretty agnostic. Um, you know, at the end of the day, you've got a slightly smaller frontal area from the tire that you're pushing through the air. So it has a fairly limited impact on aerodynamics. Um, it is marginally slower, but you know, we're talking less than a watt. So it's not going to have a material impact on your riding. I, I guess the, the counter argument that I would point to is, well, actually, why would you be running that narrower tire? Um, you know, it's, it's going to have, less ride comfort um, and or a higher rolling resistance. Um, you're not going to have the same benefits in terms of ease of fitting for, for a tubeless setup. Um, you know, there are lots of reasons why that wider tire, I think, is, is, is the way that we're all going. Um, and so that's why we've chosen across the range to optimize for that. Gotcha. Let's talk about a couple of products that you guys have. One that just came out. Um, we'll get to that in a minute, but the, uh, the limited one, which might be sold out by the time this one airs is the hype text, which is like this crazy, shiny gold carbon yeah. wheel set. What's, uh, tell me about that. Like what's, what's the story on that? How'd that come about? But also like, why, how is it gold? So that was a really cool one. So basically, um, back, back in my, my youth, I used to play a lot of, uh, a lot of hockey or sorry, I should, I should say field hockey. Um, and I spotted that a, f- a friend of mine who still plays at a really high level was rocking a colored carbon hockey stick um, from his from his sponsor. So I actually sent him a quick DM on, on Instagram said, hey man, th- this is kind of cool, but where the hell do you get this colored carbon fiber stick from? Um, and he sent me the link and it turned out that his sponsor has a partnership with, with Hypetex, this materials company. And that got me really interested. So I was thinking, well, you know, you make a hockey stick out of carbon and our wheels are made out of carbon. So is there something that could be done here? Um, but, but basically what they have is this um, proprietary technology that actually transfers color to the carbon material itself. So it's actually, it's not in the resin at all. So the carbon is, has this color applied to it um, and it's actually delivered to us as sort of raw cloth which is super useful because it means that we then have control over the prepreg process. So we can impregnate with exactly the resins that we want to use for the use case that we have, i.e. bicycle wheel rims, um, which means that the outer cosmetic layer that we're using of the hype text, because like, we're, we're not made of, you know, the entire wheel isn't made of gold, unfortunately. Um, but uh, you know, it still has the same structural properties in terms of um, what we're looking to deliver from the wheel. So what we're able to do is effectively to have a colorful wheel with zero weight penalty in terms of having to paint it. 
Um, you know, we've done some custom rims for for athletes in the past where they said, like, we've we really want a bright colored rim, so we paint the entire thing. And that actually adds, you know, a reasonable amount of weight to the rim. Um, or, you know, if you're doing something crazy like a fade, then you've got weight on one side and not the other side. So you've got some imbalancing to deal with. What the the hype tech product allows us to do is apply that color across the rim for zero weight penalty and zero performance compromise. Um, which for me was pretty exciting and it was pretty cool. And, 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 you know, like we made no secret of the fact that, that as a business, I think hype techs were quite keen to get into cycling. Um, and, and this was a, a way for them to do so. Um, and it's really, it's really attention grabbing, you know, you have a look at it and it, it really is exactly as you describe it. It's kind of a gold carbon fiber finish. Um, so, so, so yeah, it's, it's a really cool one. Um, I, I, to the best of my knowledge, I think we've still got a couple of our, so we do, we're doing a limited edition of the gold to begin with. We've still got a couple of wheel sets available, um, of that. And I think, you know, we're going to sort of see how it goes as to whether or not we, you know, follow up with other limited editions of, of other colors, because actually, you know, there are, there are more than just gold colors available, um, from hype techs. And we now have the process in place to, to apply it to our rims. That's really cool. Yeah. I'll put a picture of them in the, the show notes for this post. So check that out, at, um, on the website, if you want to see what I'm talking about, but the, so that actually, you mentioned that you add the resins yourself. So are you guys, is that your typical construction method where you take in raw cloth or fiber and then add the resins yourself? Cause I mean, most brands are using, I mean, almost, almost every brand is using prepreg carbon to make their rims. Yeah. So it, it depends. Um, the, the vast majority of the carbon that we use comes to us, um, as prepreg. Um, but there are certain situations within the rim where we do have full control over the resin. Um, the biggest example of that is in our, in our gravel wheels, for example. Um, the outer edge of the, um, rim at the at sort of the, the bead, um, on the hookless rim, we actually use a slightly different resin that's a little bit more flexible, um, to allow for greater compliance and impact resistance. Um, because because they're hook, the, the rims are hookless for our for our gravel wheels, they don't need the same rigidity in terms of the bead hook strength. So by making it a little bit more impact resistant um, with that sort of greater compliance, you have a, a much more durable wheel as a result. So so that's where you know having the relationship that we have with our manufacturer really pays off because we could say right, well, we know you guys don't normally do this, but we really want to do this. So let's make find a way to make it happen. Um, and so there we can, uh, there we can sort of really make something a little bit different through the manufacturing process. Very cool. Um, before we get to the, the, the last, your newest, most, I don't know, maybe not most exciting. <laughs> if you're not a triathlete, maybe not most exciting, but, uh, before we get to that, there's, um, I was just thinking now that you're talking about resins, the, yeah, there's a couple of wheels out now and rims and some other things that are using a fully recyclable carbon product. So instead of a typical resin, it's more of a, I, I call it a thermoplastic. They have other words for it, but it, it, as far as I can tell, it's essentially a thermoplastic, you know, it's a nylon, um, that, you know, you melt, you infuse, it solidifies as during the curing and you have another carbon fiber product just without typical resins. Anyway, um, have you guys played with that at all or like what's your personal opinion on that material so i've not we've not directly tested it um i think you know it's a fascinating thing to look at um you know 
we live in a world where quite rightly there is an increasing focus on the sort of the the sustainability of manufacturing processes and i think unfortunately you know a thermo you know the, the traditional sort of thermoset carbon if you like is is actually very unsustainable from that respect um i think there are still some challenges with that that sort of manufacturing process um for example you know how truly reusable is the product once it's through its initial life cycle you know as soon as you cut those fibers within the carbon then you remove a vast amount of the advantages of the material um so yes you can you could sort of uh, melt down the resin um and and do something with that but in terms of the actual usability of the the carbon itself there are still some challenges um but you know look it, it's a it's a super exciting area it's something that is definitely on my agenda of things that we do need to do more with um and i you know i'm really looking forward to learning more about it i think you know certainly some of the stuff that i've seen and, and like i say it comes with the disclaimer of I've, I've not held it in my hand i've not ridden it yet um it does seem really innovative and really exciting yeah, cool. Um, and then right before we started recording, you mentioned a couple of other little interesting tidbits you discovered or people have asked about, and maybe you've tried testing in the wind tunnel. One of them was, you know, does what about like covering your valve holes and stuff with tape? And what were what were some of the other ones? Yeah, I mean, so this is a little um, pet project that I have. That every time we go to the wind tunnel, I always try and answer a question that somebody's asked me on a ride or you know in the cafe afterwards. Um, and it and it's just little things like. You know, somebody. I was doing a triathlon one time, and somebody uh, didn't have a roll of tape to tape over the the valve cutout on their disc wheel, and they were panicking, thinking, "Oh man, I'm going to lose so much here." And I thought, actually, I've, no, I've never seen this tested. I know, I know, right? <laughs> but uh, but no. So genuinely, I, I thought, well, let's test this, um, and it was really interesting. So found that if you have a single sided cutout. I, you can only access the valve from one side of the wheel, then actually it is quite important to cover it because you're talking about two or three watts. Um, whereas if it's double-sided, I, you can reach through your disc wheel, makes no difference at all. That's wild. Is it, does it only make a difference when the wind is coming from that side of the bike? or So that's across a weighted average yaw sweep. So that's across both sides um, when we're testing. Um, and then the other one that, that sort of really gets people going is, uh, tires and directions. Um, you know, we've all been there. We've all got that brand new tire fitted, seated, sealed, and then you, you chuck it on the bike and you think, oh man, that's backwards. Done that a couple of times. Yeah. And, and you think, you know, does that genuinely make a difference? Um, so again, we, we did that, we tested it, um, and people will be both pleased and devastated to learn that actually it doesn't make a difference <laughs> certainly not within the margin of error of the wind tunnel um so so yeah as much as tire tread makes a difference the direction of the tread you don't need to lose sleep over it assuming you can handle the aesthetics yeah right or i wonder if it, it at the road level right because they're so minute anyway does it even really affect handling maybe maybe in wet conditions right if it's designed to shed water maybe yeah, although there is an argument that says if you're going if you're going fast enough that you're running the risk of aqua, aquaplaning on a bike, you've got bigger problems than, than aquaplaning on a bike. Yeah, you're probably also a rock star. Yeah, exactly. Point. Or yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about this new disc wheel with the classified internal shifting rear hub. 
Yeah, so this this one's actually really exciting for us. Um, so for, for those of, those people who haven't come across classified yet, um, I, I'd be surprised if there are many left. Um, this is the new drivetrain system that has effectively allows you to replace your front mech um, with the power shift hub, so it moves the the front shifting into the into the hub body itself, um, and we have been working with them as a wheel build partner since the beginning of the year officially, but we've been developing products with them for, for much longer now. And yeah, we've just just recently launched the first disc wheel that is fully compatible with the classified power shift system, um, which is going to allow classified to get into triathlon in particular. Um where I think you know there is a massive use case for the technology because all of a sudden you're looking at a situation where you can ditch the front mech, you can benefit from the aerodynamics, you can benefit from the drivetrain efficiency that they can give you without compromising on gear range, which you know I think at the at the elite level in triathlon, um, one by really works because people have the legs, but at kind of the the mere mortal end of the triathlon world which is definitely where i sit you know I, i'm that idiot who ditched the front mech four years ago tried to then do a hilly race and ground ground my way out at 30 rpm up the climbs thinking i look pro so you know this kind of this <laughs> kind of gives looks, them, really. Come on. exactly exactly but, you know but this gives you that sort of massive benefit um and i think that what we're what we're really seeing with it is that you, you know you pair the classified drivetrain technology with our disc wheel developed around a wider tire, you're going to be much more efficient because anybody who's ever ridden a, a disc wheel will be able to relate to this, that the solid construction makes it a much harsher ride. So again, this is where the use case of a wider tire really comes in because you run it at that lower pressure um, and you're just exponentially more comfortable over the course of your ride. So whether you're doing a time trial and looking to finish as fresh as possible for that sort of final push, or whether you're doing a triathlon and you're thinking about going for a run afterwards, it's all about getting you to the finish line as fresh as possible, as well as quick as, as quickly as possible. Um, and I think that, you know, what was really interesting going through the development process originally for the disc wheel was that, you know, we went, we sat out and said, you know, we want to make the widest disc wheel in the world. So it's 22 and a half mil internal and it's 30.5 mil external at the rim. Um, and actually when we tested it, we realized that it's, it's agnostic up to a 30 mil tire. So there's no aero penalty running it with a 30 mil tire. You know, if you said that to a time trialist from five years ago, they would have passed out on the spot. But, you know, here we are now in a world where you can run a 30 mil tire on your disc wheel at, you know, mid 50 PSI. And still be looking at delivering a performance. Um, so, so yeah. Well, as soon as we were start, started talking to Classified about you know getting getting their technology into a disc wheel, it became a bit of a no brainer because it just all became about this efficiency story, um, trying to make you as efficient as possible on the bike. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it's had its challenges. You know, I think the the biggest hurdle was literally how do you how do you fit. This different. I mean, if you ever look at a, a classified wheel, the hub shell is an in, entirely different shape to what you would normally see. Um, so we had to pretty much remold the entire wheel around it um, in order to make it compatible. But as a result, um, yeah, it's, it's super exciting for us to be the first to be the first going to market with this technology in a disc wheel, 
and to be the launch partner for Classified going into triathlon, which I think is going to be massive for them. So there must be enough market demand for you to make that investment in new molds to fit that rim in there. So like, are the Classified ones doing well for you? I mean, I hope there's enough demand. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, ge- genuinely, I think, you know, triathlon has always been a really big market for us. I think, um, you know, there's already that aero focus. There's already that sort of incredibly razor sharp performance focus. Um, and like, like I say, I think that it's a really, really strong use case for the classified technology. So genuinely, it, 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 I mean, I joke about it, but it was a no brainer to say, let's, let's make this investment. Let's get this product out there. Because I think, you know, we've already seen it. We've already, we've already had some pro athletes racing on it. Um, for for a while now, and they're seeing the benefits. So I think that overall, yeah, there, there's a massive benefit to be had. And I think that again, you know, getting this product out there is massive for us as well because it sort of helps position the brand as kind of a real innovator in the space, which is where we want to be. So, a couple of questions: Does that mean that they have a TT bar end shifter coming out then? Uh, there definitely is something along those range, along those lines. Um, I think, you know, we've been working with the, the pro athletes that we co-sponsor to optimize shifter placement for them. Um, so yeah, that's definitely, def- that's definitely being taken into consideration. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. Not that classified as your company, but that seems like almost a necessity to enter the high end triathlon crowd market. Um, you know, and if you can convince a triathlete that the, something will make them faster, they will absolutely spend money on it. <laughs> At least uh, that's, exactly. that's the general, uh, stereotype so with the 30 mil rear wheel i was just starting to think you know have you tested different rim or different tire with front to rear and is there any aerodynamic impact right could you get away with the 30 in the rear for a little more comfort with and would you recommend then still keeping the 28 up front yeah so i mean absolutely is the, the short answer to that um the the rear wheels across the range are, are more agnostic to tire width um, I think what's interesting is that the disc is the only one where there was zero penalty, or in actual fact, there was actually a very small gain from running the 30 mil tire. Um, what we generally find is that the deeper the wheel, the less impact the wider tire has. So, you know, if you go with our sort of shallow Ronda all road wheel, there is actually a, a slightly bigger penalty for the, for the wider tire. And that goes back to what we were saying about the the deeper the rim, the more rim surface you have in order to recapture the airflow that's been disrupted by the tire. Um, so, so ironically, the the tire that you would, or sorry, the, the wheel that you'd be more likely to say, let's go a little bit wider on, is the one that has the slightly bigger penalty due to the rim depth. Um, but yeah, I mean, between you and I and all of the listeners, I'm more than happy running 30s or even 32s on some of my bikes because you know that that wider tire lower pressure ride feel is exactly what i'm after um and you know i'm getting to the point where performance isn't everything so it it does come down to a bit of a trade-off the trade-off is much less on the rear wheel but at the same time you know you can make an argument for for certainly for a 30 um especially now as you know interestingly when we when we kicked off the development project it was back in 2019 if you put a if you put a 28 mil tire from 2019 next to a 28 mil tire from 2023, a lot of them are actually quite different. Um, you know, we very much developed around a measure, sorry, a, a stated 28 mil tire from four years ago. A lot of which would blow up to sort of more like 30, even 31 mil on on some of our rims. 
Um, so it, it it's never an exact it's it's never an exact statement to say you must run this tire width. Um, it's more saying this is what we've optimized around, and this is where we find the best performance tends to be. Um, so yeah, it's a very long way of saying it depends. Um, but at the same time, um, I think, you know, it does come down to use case for each individual as to what, what works best. All right. So if I were going to try and absolutely, truly optimize, then I would want to have a measured tire width of 28 millimeters on your rims. Not necessarily, because like I say, we optimized around a stated 28 from, from three or four years ago. So maybe, um, so there is, there is wiggle room. There is wiggle room. Actually. I think, you know, a 30 is getting it, it, at most 30s nowadays, you would find aren't going to come with a, a massive, if at all, um, area penalty. Right. But if I'm putting a 28 on and it measures out to 30 or 30 and a half or something, I'm not going to, I shouldn't be losing my mind lose, about no. all these we've lost thought, gains. <laughs> yeah. We, we've thought about that one. Don't worry. Yeah. I bet. Right on. So is there a point like your Ronda is the shortest or shallowest of your wheels right now? And that's, you know, front is 35 mil, rear is 39 deep, which is another number. I don't know if you want to briefly touch on your your internal rule of 110. Um, yeah. You know, the front is or the rear is 10 percent deeper than um, the fronts. But does it make any sense to try and take your wider concept to a shallower, say, like a 25, 28 set of rims? You know, like a climber's wheel set? In theory, yes. Um, I guess we just need to understand the size of the demand for that type of product. Um, you know, are we going to are we going to appeal to an audience that is going after sort of pure weight weenie gains with saying, well, you you need to actually give up some of that by running a wider tire and by running a wider rim, which in and of itself wouldn't necessarily be the lightest option. Um, so it's, it's trying to avoid sort of conflating the two of saying, do we chase absolute weight savings? In which case maybe a 28 isn't the way forward and maybe a wider rim isn't the way forward. Or are we trying to say, let's choose something that delivers a meaningful aero benefit and allows a wider tire, but might not be the absolute lightest wheel set out there. Okay. That's an interesting answer. A good answer. Um, and you guys' wheels are pretty light, uh, I think. It's, it's, it's never going to be the lightest wheel out there um, when you start going wider, but at the same time, you also don't want it to be so heavy that nobody's going to even look at it. So we've, I think we we found a reasonable balance in there. Yeah, no, I, I tested the Ronda a while back and I really liked them a lot. Um, I think you've hit that sweet spot for sure. Yeah, the other only thing I wanted to ask you about with uh, regards to the business model I forgot to talk about earlier was you know the, the decision to go consumer direct, um, which there's a lot of brands doing it and it's i i've got no problems with it shops might not like it but um you guys are able to offer a pretty good value for the wheels like you know and it's just it was that like uh when you first started this it sounded like that was kind of your model right it was like there was some really expensive stuff you were looking at and then there was crap that you weren't quite sure about ordering off of you know ebay or maybe alibaba or something and it sounded like that was your goal was to hit that middle ground of pricing, but still offer a really good product. But yeah, hundred percent. It's exactly that we want. I wanted to start the business with an idea of making aerodynamics accessible. 
Um, that's that's the line I've always used. And, and I've always said that that comes in two respects. One is the way that we talk about it. And hopefully that comes across in the way that, you know, we explain what we're doing. We're very transparent with the data. Um, you know, we don't hide behind sort of technical terminology that makes it very sort of opaque. Um, and then the second pr- way of making something accessible is is through price point. And the way that we do that is by going direct to consumer, by having that sort of leaner business model um, and, and making it affordable that way. So it, it's a really interesting one because on the one hand, the price point really helps us in terms of keeping us competitive. On the other hand, from a business perspective, it means it's a little bit more challenging because we don't have the same level of margins to play with as some of our competitors. So you know, we do have to be really quite innovative in terms of, you know, how do we look at new markets? How do we look at, um, you know, sort of uh, trade relationships? How do we look at retailer relationships? And, you know, there's a huge amount that I could go into on that. But I think, you know, the overall thing is saying that I guess we just try to take it as innovative and flexible an approach as possible to say that, you know, when we work with partners, we're not just trying to solve the problem of price, we're trying to solve other problems too. And I think that that's where we can have an advantage. So are you still trying to go through distributors and retailers also? Um, so, you know, we, we, we've got different models. We work with distributors in certain Asian markets. Um, for example, we have distributors in India, Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, uh, South Korea. We have a, a slightly more hybrid model in Australia where we work with a retailer who then also has the um, capacity to work B2B whilst also, you know, whilst also to some extent fulfilling our D2C options. So, you know, customer places an order through the website in the UK and it's fulfilled locally. In the UK, we work with a number of retailers, perhaps with a slightly different focus to sort of, you know, just stack stock high on the shelves and sell it off cheap at the end of season sale. We're saying that we're going to offer a slightly different product to a customer base that perhaps you can help us unlock. So it's it's really sort of, I'd say, yeah, it's very market dependent. Um, and it is to some extent situation dependent. But that's what I mean by being innovative. It's saying, you know, what are the problems that these people are facing? What are the problems that these retailers, distributors, partners, bike brands are facing? And how can we help solve them? And I think that's where we're seeing some real success as we grow is saying, you know, let's work with you. Let's understand what your problem is and let's figure out how we can help you with that rather than just saying, here's your product, here's your price, you know, here's your nice fat margin off your pop. Interesting. Thank you for sharing all that. <laughs> no worries. Awesome, man. Well, is there anything that I didn't ask about that, you know, people typically find super fascinating about your wheels or design or brand? No, I, th- I think to be honest, that's, that was really interesting, actually. There was a lot in there that actually I've probably not discussed in that level of detail before, which is really interesting. And I really enjoy that because it means that otherwise, A, I've, I've definitely done conversations like this before in the past where I've come out of it and I thought, shit, that just sounds like a massive like <laughs> infomercial type thing where, you know, I know the host is trying really hard to help help me out, but I don't think it comes across that way. And then other times I come come out and it's like, wow, I've said literally nothing about the brand and I've only (laughs) talked about science and this is going to appeal to like three PhD students and that's it. But no, I mean, I said, when I said to Amy, like, you know, I'd love to do do something with, with you on this is I think I really enjoy the way that we can talk about business. We can talk about product. We can talk about science. We can talk about industry fairly seamlessly. I really like that. So yeah, that that was like genuinely interesting for me as well. And so hopefully it comes across like that for listeners. 
Yeah, I hope so too. I mean, I geek out on it, and as like as much as I like to think I'm special and unique, you know, if, if I like it, there's probably a million other people in the world that like it. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think and I think it's that whole thing, like genuinely, that accessible aerodynamics is massive for us because it's you know it's trying to sort of break down barriers that I think some people artificially put up around this because you know if you can be gatekeeper of the knowledge then you can control what people think about it. Whereas if you can educate people to the point where they can interpret it themselves, it leaves you more open to challenge. But at the same time, it means that people can have a more meaningful conversation, I guess. Yeah, I think we could apply that uh, line of thinking to a lot of things going on in the world right now. 100%, yeah, I completely agree. (laughs) On that note, um, yeah, yeah, thanks, appreciate your time. Yeah, no worries at all. Um, I was going to say, if, the, if you do come across anything, if you need any like other follow-ups, details, I know I, I need to send over a, a photo, or, um, but anything like that, then just let me know and we'll, we'll send stuff over. I'm more than happy to do that. All right. Well, thanks for, thanks for coming on the show. No worries. It was really cool to chat. And uh, yeah, hopefully you'll be able to catch up in person soon. If you like this episode and have a product or tech you're curious about, Head over to bikerumor.com slash podcast and fill in the form to submit your idea. You'll also find links and photos for this episode there, plus a link to this and every other episode we've ever recorded. If you really like this and want more, hit subscribe on your favorite podcast player and leave us a rating and review. That's the grease that keeps our wheels spinning over here in podcast land, and it helps us keep getting amazing guests for you. You can find us on social. We're at Bike Rumor on all the things. And if you like random entrepreneurship, NFT, Web3, cycling stuff, you'll find me at Tyler Benedict on all the social channels. Thanks for listening. Until next time, keep the rubber side down.